During this conversation, we hear from a number of voices, not only from Matthew, but also Dan and Kim, who have all had varying experiences of being neurodiverse, who have also gone down the track of being diagnosed to different extents. And it's fascinating to hear the overlaps and as well as the differences and the diversity within that experience. If you have the feeling that life is just a bit more difficult than it needs to be, and those people around you seem to be weathering it much more easily, and you feel there's something different in the way you think and the way you experience the world that many people don't seem to understand or resonate with, and you feel that you can bring something to the table that others can't, but you just haven't been given the opportunity to do so, then I recommend listening on, because I think there's a lot here that you'll really find useful, not only in terms of an education as to what neurodiversity is, but also potentially a validation in terms of how you're looking at the world and realising you're not alone and actually being different and doing things differently and thinking differently can actually be a benefit to those around you, the businesses you work for, the people in your community and yourself. Enjoy. At the moment, well, what I now do is I really, what I say, I nurture curious approaches to deep-rooted complex issues, which is in some ways a way of describing what I've always done. But what I now do is I guide and support people with fundamentally unconventional perspectives and the organizations that want to benefit from those perspectives. And I specialize in working with the unique talents of neurodivergent professionals, academics, and entrepreneurs, and also in using new technology to establish generative approaches or regenerative approaches rather than uh, transactional point approaches. It all kind of ties together in its own way. And I came to this, I certainly came to this, well, I came to this particular description this morning, <laughs> which is the nature of my work is kind of constantly iterative and changing, uh, and is often the case with other people that I work with as well. But uh, yeah, so I've always been interested in these things. I had a dyslexia diagnosis as a child, never felt it was a perfect explanation. And uh, a few years ago, I had a ADHD diagnosis as well. In the meantime, I studied psychology as an adult, like a lot of people with ADHD, I I did reasonably well in in education until I absolutely didn't um, until it until it uh, until it actually involved you know applying myself in a way that I couldn't do uh, or uh, wasn't inclined to do. But I came back to studying as an adult and and studied psychology. So that kind of emerged as a whole load of as a way of working with this stuff and, and a way of understanding this stuff. The other side of my kind of my personal work has been around consciousness and my own consciousness practices. And on some level, I think that feeds really interestingly into this because, you know, when we're talking about people who experience the world differently, that's on a fundamentally, really quite fundamental level. It's about that, that conscious experience of the world mm. in quite a different way to the way that most other people experience it. And so understanding my own has been very helpful in understanding how that might 
differ or be similar to other people's. I was curious about that, what you said about, all right, education, well, it seemed to work well until it didn't. Yeah. So, so one of the reasons I work with the people that I do is, and actually there's been some interesting conversation in the WhatsApp, in the Happy Startup WhatsApp group about this, is that I tend to work with people who get diagnosed late or haven't been diagnosed, partly because they've been able to mask or camouflage. They've been able to adapt, essentially. One of the reasons that they can adapt is because they're gifted in other ways. They have a talent to be able to do something that allows them to be able to kind of get by. Very often that experience manifests in education or in, in pretty much any domain of kind of being able to cruise along without really applying oneself very much. And then when you actually do have to apply yourself, it becomes very difficult very quickly. And so you have this, this is the space of the, the kind of formally gifted, as that is, this is sometimes described. It's, it's hitting, hitting an unexpected barrier because actually you've kind of, you've not really been engaging in quite the same way everyone else has, because you didn't, first of all, because you didn't have to, and second of all, because it wasn't very interesting for you to do so. So you've just kind of, you know, cruised a bit, done your own thing. And then when you're suddenly required to do something more it becomes really quite challenging. It sounds like within education, there's a lot, a lot of people, well, they come up against a barrier because of, of uh, how they're trying to, they're coping. It sounds like the coping mechanisms stop working at some point. You, uh, For you at a personal level, how, how did that work when it came to work? You know, and, and getting, because, you know, I when I first met you, I can remember you, you were working in IT and then it sounded like, you know, pretty full on job. How were you able to cope there? Well, you know, was that job suited to you at the time? Or I'm just curious as to, yeah, your awareness of the way you interacted with the world and then how that coupled with the work that you were doing and then what challenges there were or what benefits. So uh, I kind of ended up in IT partly because I'd always used computers. It was, a, it was a, like a, with the dyslexia diagnosis, one of the recommendations was, okay, well, uh, you know, computers can help. <laughs> and so I'd always use them and I ended up actually just working with that. I started my IT career as an assistive trainer. I was actually helping people with assistive technology and, and kind of moved through a whole load of different things. But in the end, what happened is I, I, I met both the awareness that I got to a certain level and I had no interest in, in continuing in that vein. So I was like, I looked at all of the jobs around, like above at the next level. And I was like, I'm not interested in any of that. I don't want that. Then I looked kind of sideways and I was like, I don't want either any of that <laughs> either. And that coincided with really kind of burning out actually with realizing that I was not in a place that felt good or that could last for very long and that was having really quite negative consequences on my health. And so looking around and then changing some of that was really the starting off point of reconsidering this from scratch. And I think related to neuro being neurodivergent is really, I'd always assumed that everyone found some of the things I found as difficult as I found them. And that turned out not to be true. And I think that understanding that actually my, the amount of energy, the amount of effort I had to extend, expend to do things other people found relatively straightforward really did kind of challenge my whole sense of 
what it was to do what I, you know, to be who I wanted to be and really, or thought I was, I suspect is probably a bad way of putting it. And really how I wanted to proceed from that place, knowing that, and knowing that actually, you know, the, the exhaustion and the challenge, the level of difficulty that I felt was not normal in that sense. It reminds me, um, of a message that Katrina Tan, who's in our community, I'm not sure if she's with us live, but she wanted me to just share this with, um, because you've been helping her and talking to her about her own experiences. And, um, you know, the message I really quite like from her, which she was saying like along the line of just helping her ease into her own wiring, which I thought was quite nice way of putting things. Mm. And she was saying that looking back, she could see how she wasn't lazy. She was incredibly motivated and energized, but just sometimes it was only all the things that she cared about and it didn't necessarily work with the productivity mm. profit model or society or the, the systems that they were, she was trying not to work within. And so I, I, that's, I got that sense from what you're saying is like, yeah, this going up isn't going to work for me. Going sideways isn't going to work for me. Actually mm -hmm. being here isn't working for me at all. And so there's needing to be a switch. And you said something about being neurodivergent. And so maybe it's an opportunity here because I can remember talking to you previously that you talked about neurodiversity, neurodivergent, neuro, there's a, a certain language around this that there's, I, there's some words on some level, a lot of this is about giving that experience words. And that's actually a part of this, you know, finding mm. the words for our experience and that help explain to ourselves and to others, what's exactly going on for us and how we are experiencing something. So in this space, so neurodiversity refers to a population and neuro her population can be neurodiverse. They have a variety of different neurological ways of being. If you are different from the majority of people in a space, and this is obviously it's relative, so it's entirely like about who's around you, you are neurodivergent as an individual. So you're, you're different from most other people around you. And that's sometimes contrasted with being neurotypical, which is to be similar neurologically to most people around you. And there are always degrees of difference. It's not to say that everyone is different. I tend to find that there's something, it's kind of qualitative. It's that when there's a different, you know, when, it, when it's big enough to be fundamentally, qualitatively a different way of experiencing the world, that's usually the way it kind of manifests. And when people start to become interested in that difference and then or get significant issues from that difference, it's more, a bit more than a preference. And then there are different diagnoses or different collections of ways of being. And those are sometimes called specific neuro-minorities. So for example, ASC, Autism Spectrum Condition, might be a neuro-minority. ADHD might be a neuro-minority. Dyslexia might be a neuro-minority. And for many of us, we find ourselves as members of multiple neuro-minorities if we find ourselves neurodivergent at all. There's diversity as well in the neurodiversity, and it sounds like you can have, I'm going to say, maybe multiple labels put on you. And I wanted to like maybe segue into this question here from Julian. And he was saying, to label or not to label? Labels can bring stigma and blame, but can also change our reality, our view of ourselves and our behavior, which can be very empowering. Is there a right or wrong in labeling? Do we need to escape labels or embrace them? Yeah, that's a really great question. And I think for me, the fundamental arbiter of whether a label is helpful or not 
is the person to whom it is applied. It's not down to anyone else. <laughs> so the question is, is this helpful for you? Is this explanatory for you? Does this enable you to understand yourself and your reality in a different way? One of the difficulties with being in any minority group is essentially the fact that that is marginalized, you know, that, that, that it is identified as a minority. It's identified as different relative to the norm. And that can be kind of used against you often, sometimes unintentionally or, or often unconsciously, but it can be very much uh, uh, an issue for people. So I think the extent to which you can use it and the consequences, the implications of it for you and your experience and your, the approaches that you then choose as a result are, are really up to you um, and your experience of the thing rather than someone else's experience of you and how they choose to label you. That's theirs. And frankly, it should remain theirs and not become yours. But mm. very often, if you're in a minority, you don't get the choice to keep it that way. I was going to invite Dan up, actually, because he actually loves his label. And uh, I thought it'd be a, a relevant bit of input here from someone. Another person who I assume identifies themselves as neurodiverse and uh, getting just a, I'd like to hear his, uh, an experience of how he has been working with it and how it affects his, the way he works as well, I think, because I think this part of this is giving people a, a window into other people's worlds. So yeah, I, I, it'd be interesting to hear, you know, you just said you, you'd love, you love your label. Do you know, just share a bit more, but maybe quickly just share yeah. about what you do and share your relationship to this topic of neurodiversity and then the label. So I'm an aspiring illustrator who makes money by being a management consultant. And yeah, I mean, listening, listen to man, like so many parallels and these similar kind of experiences. Like I kicked ass at school. Like I, I chose, I decided when I was 12, I was going to be a doctor because, you know, what I didn't realize then is options completely paralyze me. So if I make a decision early, remove loads of options. Right. And also I knew exact, and I was at boarding school, really tight structure. Also at boarding school, I could do anything I wanted. I could get into every single activity that I wanted, which constant simulation. And literally I could wake up half past seven every day, knew exactly what I was doing until I went to sleep at nine o'clock every day, get to medical school, blew up because I'm suddenly by myself with no structure designed, intended to now be an adult in a world doing a high stress high emotionally charged environment and designed to be able to just adapt. And yeah, that's what as I say. I was, I kicked ass until the point and I didn't. And it went from top grades to slowly getting more and more ill to, to my fifth year, my final year of medical school, when the, my, I basically continued being, got, you know, probably struggled through, passed my exams, got sucked to the NHS and killed myself. Or I quit and make a choice for my health. But like from that point, my life has then been all one step after another of somehow trying to prove to myself that I'm not a failure, that I'm good enough, you know, and it, had, it, had, it has massive emotional effects. And so that's like, this is where kind of labels come in because the boarding school gave me lots from a 
intellectual point of view and a stimulating point of view, it, and a lot, a lot of emotional ways, it was crushing. So often people with um, ADHD are hypersensitive in some way. Some people could be auditory, some could be visual. And it's different to, say, being an introvert or extrovert. It can, it can apply to, to both. And that can manifest itself in another syndrome called RSD, uh, which is rejection sensitive dysphoria, which basically means that any kind of criticism or even perceived criticism is basically felt like physical pain. Mm. And I have that to the max. So I'm in boarding school, right? Full of all of these people who socially gelled, like, you know, get in the clubs, you know, things like that. And I'm this kid who lived abroad, had a quite sheltered life, full of self-confidence to the point that I was cocky as crap. And I was so different in so many ways. And yeah, I never, and I've never been a thin match, right? I was a, you know, I was a big kind of chunky prop, right? In rugby. So like targeted. So I've had so many labels throughout my life, right? Where labels are imposed on me. They're defining me in some, according to somebody else's view of the world and somebody else's opinion about how I should fit into how they see the world. And that includes people in my family, even though they don't realize it, even now, right? I, you know, tensions in my family come up because they're still trying, they still want me to fit into how they think that I should fit into their world, which is exacerbated. So like that RSD and that pain is exacerbated by how much you care about somebody. So like the pain that you get from the, your closest family, even though they don't realize that they're trying to hurt you, they're, they're not trying to hurt you. You don't realize that they're doing it. It's massive. So. It was actually summer camp when I first thought, well, just thought about ADHD because what I didn't realize until my ADHD tendency for massive amount of, of research took over was that there are different types. So in broad terms, there is generally inattentive, generally hyperactive or compliant. So. ADHD is not a lack of attention. It's an inability, it's a lack of dopamine production, dopamine reward, which means that you can focus, but you can only focus on things that intrinsically give you, you enjoy because they produce more dopamine. So actually it's a focus problem. It's not a hyperactive problem. So what happens is that your brain tries to stimulate itself, whether that, if it's probably physical by moving. If it's primarily inattentive, right? It's, it, it's an internal world. It, it's, it's like, you could be sat there like, yeah, but you're constantly, I, I could be into stuff and reading activities. Your brain is going a hundred million miles an hour, trying to stimulate itself, but not ever being able to latch onto stuff. And you can explain these things. Well, I do that. I was like, yeah, everybody sometimes will go upstairs and forgot why they went there. Does it happen every time you go upstairs? I, I just wanted to add to that because I think this is one of the really important, one of the barriers, one of the words, whenever anyone has any of these difficulties, you know, that, that everyone's a little bit ADHD, which 
is one of those really unpleasant lies that has some truth in it. Because everyone or many people do actually have those underlying traits or some of the traits in some ways. But it's a question of degree and a question of, you know, how much of a barrier does this present? And I think when you mentioned RSD, the rejection sensitive dysphoria, which I've experienced for a very long time as well, is people like people would tell you, well, no, no one likes rejection. And it's like, well, yes, okay, that's kind of true. And I'm not actually sure that's entirely true because there are some people that seek it. But anyway, but many people do not like rejection. The question is, do you have a slightly odd interaction with a person in a shop that you've never met before and will never probably never meet again and then ruminate on what you did wrong about it for the rest of the day? The rest of that is that's what that level of, you know. Uh, and I think that's understanding that that's a different experience of the world it is is a really important thing to to mention to people is like, yeah, there are small bits, but there are also the, these things are really strong when you experience them, particularly um, uh, with uh, yeah with, with, but they're just there unavoidably, unignorably. Yeah, and so like RSD has RSD has dominated my entire life. Like, it's so difficult to put yourself out there because you basically assume that you're going to get rejected, and that rejection mm -hmm. is extremely painful, so you don't do it. So you you, you constantly, and obviously then you got to go. You're not you. That's going to then manifest other psychological issues, which are not specific to anything to do with being introverted, but it's just a good thing to exacerbate it. So. My label came after I was at the, um, the, the, the summer camp and we found out our, our erstwhile MC Sanderson had got his own diagnosis. And you kind of go, you look at Sanderson, who's largely alive, you kind of go, yeah, and that's, I could have told you that because, and that's because I had the biases. I had this thing like the ADHD means you're a big bounty person, right? But actually, most of the time, neurodiversity is hidden. And we, and like we mask it in some way, or we get some people who are better at masking, some people are worse at masking. Normally you only get, find out that you are neurodiverse when you bother someone who's neurotypical. When you become a problem, they get you tested so they can label you. Because I had RSD, I was always the good guy. I, I never got in trouble. I always did everything right. But you know, to that, there's loads of perfectionism in me, which is not great, but I wasn't a radar, right? Because I was always the class, the teacher's pet, all of that, right? And and I'm primarily inattentive, so I wasn't bouncing around being disruptive. So I just completely, you know, went under the radar. And then, so it wasn't until something like, and I just just interesting. Ooh, I wonder why you know he thought at an adult like that. And so I just did some research. I went to some some of the, the good central places to get information and a lot of them will do brief little kind of checklists or quizzes to just kind of assess a very high level if you might have some of the, the traits and i started reading some of these lists and i was kind of go yeah yeah and like, when, you, when you've said like yes like 90 percent of this list you're kind of like right this so then my propensity for massive amounts of research because if you do lots of research you can't be wrong and you can't be uh, criticized took over and so obviously I looked a lot into it and I was like, yes, I'm, I'm really confident things started to fit into place. 
And so the provision for getting diagnosed is horrible. I was, or I, I applied, I talked to my GP and who's been very supportive and got me onto a thing like that. By the time I'd waited two years, I'm like, I could be waiting another two years. And every moment I'm not diagnosed, I'm not getting help. I'm not getting support because it's not because I care so much about the label is because it becomes access to support and it allows you access into groups or support networks or whatever it is. And so I ended up going private, paying for it. I had that luxury, I had that privilege by being able to do well enough, not as well as I'd like, but you know, I can't complain. I like, you know, managed to carve out a niche for myself through maybe some talent or gift as, as I said. <laughs> so yeah, but my label then lets me to own this, right? That I can versus like, yeah, I've got this. And because I've got this, I can understand it. If I can understand it, I can educate people. And I can start to those things. So yeah, I love my label because it gave, not just gave me access to medicine, which, which helps me, but it, it's not, it's not a cure. It brings me up close to someone who's neurotypical. That's it. <laughs> just, but it just feels like it's a little bit more equality. I don't think it's equity, but it's certainly uh, closer to equality. Thanks, Dan. I, I just uh, briefly, because I'd like to also bring Kim in at some point, but just a quick question for you in terms of with work, how is it that you're able to, or do you, are you having to create coping mechanisms? You know, I hear Matt talking about masking, but then, or is it you're finding that actually you found a way to work that doesn't drain you or, or aligns with how you think? Just to get your thought about that. So, like, you know, I'm not shy of saying that happy startup saved my life. It really did. But it's, it got me onto a new path, a new, a new part of that journey of understanding and owning and being a better version of myself rather than worrying about what I'm making. So I don't have all the coping mechanisms and I've built up a huge repertoire of bad coping mechanisms because they're all coping mechanisms which are designed to be judged by someone who's not me. They're all, if I do this thing, I will make somebody else happy. Hmm. So a lot of the deep work that I'm doing right now, and I'm getting a lot of help from Vix in the community, who's amazing. And, you know, if you ever want to get help, particularly from areas of perfectionism or, and then I, I love how started in body coaching, cause I'm getting, I'm really tapping into me. Like one of the things that I'm gifted with, because I find some of the things hard and you're, it's, uh, an ADHD brains are usually good at connections is why I'm good at my job. I can see patterns where other people don't see patterns. And so actually intuition is a big part of how I do my job well, but I don't use it for me. And so I'm tapping into this somatic intuitive aspect and with Vic's help, I'm really doing some deep work there. And so that it's not about making coping mechanisms. Actually, it's actually finding, taking responsibility and saying, stop asking for permission and stop trying to apologize for who you are. Disability is not the medical model, which is you've got a deficiency and something needs to be, you know, fixed. It's not the charitable model, which is, oh, someone suffers from a disability, right? Disability exists because people who are in the center of the bell curve do not create a world in which the people at the edge of the bell curves can live. <laughs> the world that you exist in is not designed for. That's what disability is. So disability is about saying, you know what, how am I happy at the edge of the bell curve? How do I just change the world? So I do that. 
the responsibility of everybody else is to understand that they might be the majority in the middle, but there are people at the edges. And their job for any kind of disability, of any kind of neuro, you know, neurodiversity, of any disability, is to say, just remember that they're not the center of the universe and they need to think about creating a world which is equitable. When was the last time you felt like a kid? When you felt like you didn't have any responsibilities or obligations? When you felt free to just be? To explore? To adventure? It's probably been a long time. And if that's the case, then you need to join us at our Happy Startup Summer Camp. It's a festival, a conference, a retreat, a weekend of camping... And at some level, none of these things. Because ultimately it's an opportunity to just gather and be with 150 people just like you. People who are looking to bring more joy, happiness, purpose and meaning into their lives and their work. People who want to spend time in nature having fun, learning about themselves, learning about business and connecting with inspirational everyday people who are normally hidden in plain sight. If you're looking for something new to do, something comfortably out of your comfort zone, then join us in the southeast of England from Friday the 16th to Sunday the 18th of September. To find out more and to apply to join us, visit happystartupsummer.camp That's all one word, happystartupsummer.camp See you there. I, I wanted to just bring that slightly, actually, to, to kind of bring Dan's point even further forward, which I think is one of the really important things that I do in my work, which is really focusing on the value of being neurodivergent to the wider system. So I think this is one of the one of the massively overlooked things in this is I don't work with businesses that are doing this just out of the kindness of their heart. I do this work with businesses because those businesses are coming to understand that the perspective, that neurodivergence gives them the, a, a huge competitive advantage. Neurodivergent people, because of that different way of experiencing the world, that different perspective, can see opportunities and threats that others simply don't. And so that ability to work with stuff that other people don't see or work in ways, particularly in, if you're with a sensitivity that others can't, is actually really about, you know, it's good for everyone. It's actually good for the people, even people right in the middle of every bell curve who are completely unchallenged in, in that sense, is the continuation of the system that supports that bell curve is dependent upon it finding new opportunities and avoiding new threats. And so it's the people at the edges who are who do that work who can keep who on some level kind of keep it going and keep it thriving for everyone else I was, I was curious about what Dan had said about so and the way I heard is like the neurotypical person was wanting the label for this person because they want to work out what you know whether it's to fix them or because they're not and even he he mentioned this side of bringing yourself up and there's a question here from Meg I'm not sure if she's with us live but she was asking about because of this the way I'm perceiving is kind of this judgment people can have on a label. 
this question about whether to disclose or not disclose a diagnosis and whether you have any any experience or opinions about that and what that could mean. Definitely. It's a difficult question and it is stigmatized. I think this is, uh, you know, the, when we say stigmatized, I think people kind of, you know, the, the consequences, the practical consequences of having a stigmatized condition is, are not that well understood in general terms. And what happens is you're both you're really, it's when people see the condition instead of the person very often, even when people are expecting you to be, are trying to be helpful without questioning their own awareness and their own position and their own capability to help. You can get people who will deny you access to things or relate to you in a certain way that are simply, you know, not helpful. It's seeing the condition instead of the person. So there, there are strong reasons not to disclose. It can be helpful, particularly if you find yourself, I think this is one of the interesting things is the more privilege that you do have, the higher you are in an organization, for example, the better it is for everyone if you do disclose. So this is one of the things I often talk to big organizations about is one of the best ways to make a destigmatize neurodivergence is for people who are on the board to be frank about the neurodivergence that they have and that they, their family have. So it's a really, it's a really challenging one. I think for me, it's like, there's no moral obligation to disclose is the way that I would say. So it's a question of whether or not it is helpful to you in the circumstances that you find it. Nice one. That's my position. You, and concomitantly, it's not appropriate to out people or suggest that they out your, or kind of beyond facilitating openly inviting them, making it easier for them, nor should you kind of push people to out themselves before they're ready. There are big consequences. It's a big shift, particularly for a pervasive neurodevelopmental condition like ADHD, AC, dyslexia, because they're always going to be there and there's a lot of stuff to negotiate around that. Mm. And so it's about transitioning to a new way of understanding things, a new way of being in a way that doesn't create complete overwhelm. That doesn't mean that the existing ways of keeping, keeping things going, stop working fully. Thank you, Matt. Mm -hmm. Awesome. Well, hopefully that's going to be helpful for Meg. I'm going to have another question here from Anya, and then I'm going to see if we can get Kim to share his uh, experiences. Uh, and as I understand it, Kim hasn't necessarily gone down the diagnosis route yet, but he's, uh, it sounds like he's connected with some of these ideas around ADHD. So before that, Anya's asking about this idea of this question about the difference between condition versus disorder. Yeah, I like to differentiate these two because it's very often considered a, you know, if you, you might have noticed I say ASC rather than ASD, whereas in the, in the conventional literature, it would be autism spectrum disorder. ADHD is, it doesn't have a positive name or a conditional name. It's a disorder in and of itself. And as Dan mentioned, it's actually completely named wrong because it isn't a deficit of attention at all. But, and that's an example of a, a very good example of what happens when other people look at us and judge us on their terms rather than on our own terms and our own experience. That's it's an external label. So for me, the condition is neutral. It's just a way of being. It's neither positive nor negative until it's in a certain context. Hmm. And so the question is then around what contexts are helpful for this particular condition. A disorder 
is a specific way of being that is pervasively unhelpful to the kind of way that the individual is. And that's not to say that people, uh, neurodivergent people, can't be disordered. In fact, very many of us end up disordered because we've taken on the disordered ways of being that we were expected to be because they were kind of forced onto us. It's equally possible for a neurotypical person to have a disordered relationship with reality, to not be, you know, not have a set of approaches that, that work, that meet their needs, a kind of contradictory relationship with reality. So it's really making those two things independent. And sometimes I talk about this as a, you know, disorder and mental health are relatively closely uh, synonymous. So it's sometimes it's, you can be mentally healthy and neurodivergent just as you can be mentally unhealthy and neurotypical is one way to, to understand that. Thank you very much, Matt. I'm going to bring Kim on now. And while we bring Kim on, I'm going to maybe tap onto this question here from Dominic. What are the things that you found difficult that you thought other people found easy or easier? Uh, but for me, until I started picking it apart, the answer is life. It was literally like, like, why do I find this? Why do I find being me so hard? Why is it so hard to be me and still kind of meet intrinsic needs and uh, meet my intrinsic needs and the and connect with others and be, you know, be welcome, be rewarded financially, do not get into trouble, not get punished, whatever. Um, so it was like, why is it so hard for me to do that? That That is the fundamental question. And we can break it down into more specific details at another point. But I think it's like, why is life hard? Why does life seem to be harder for me than it does for other people? Thank you. Maybe we'll go into a little bit more specifics in a bit, but we have Kim here. I, I wanted to get you on because from my conversations, you've you feel that that you have you identify a lot with this idea of having ADHD and i thought it would be useful to get your perspective because it feels like you haven't gone down the diagnosis route quite yet and you're you're still trying to understand what it means for you so i just be curious to hear your experience of it and how that's manifested in the way you work and, and how i think a bit like matt was saying you know what does that mean in terms of the experience of doing stuff in in the world well I've always, thanks by the way, Matt, for the, um, for the words, because I've always felt neurodivergent, which I've never said before. That's a sentence I've never said before, which actually really makes like so much sense to me, but I have always felt neurodivergent or always, and I've never quite known why. And then, so when I was in school, I got accused of cheating at my exams because I would never paid attention. I always was like, you know, joker, messing around, actually ended up getting quite good exam results. And my genuinely teachers accused me of cheating. It's because it just seemed like I wasn't paying attention, but somehow things went in. A pretty good example of that is I was listening to Dan talk so much resonated. I love you, Dan. Great to see you, mate. And I was hanging on every word, but at the same time I was crafting this decorative bulb from Lutac, and I just only really realized I did it just a few seconds ago. So that's like, you know, I have this tendency to feel like I'm not paying any attention, but actually stuff is just getting absorbed. And so I always had that at school of being like a problem. I was always a bit of a problem. And then at university, I got diagnosed with the last year of university, I got diagnosed with um, dyslexia because it always felt like I, I was like not that great at writing numbers, certain things. I just could not compute. So talking of computing, I I only applied for the thing because I got a free computer. So I was like, excellent, cool, I get a free computer, free computer, that'll help. 
Um, and then I was like, okay, well, I've actually been diagnosed with that. Like, okay, yeah, you're very dyslexic. How have you dealt with this all your life? And then I think when I went into a workplace, well, from what Dan said, of, of being in this workplace, like in an agency, just looking around, realizing like I'm just so, I just feel so different here, even though it's supposed to be a creative place. I feel like I'm just, I just don't fit in at all. I'm just not, I just don't feel like I should be here. And part of that was always coming up with so many different ideas and so, going down so many different avenues. And I wouldn't just come up with an idea. I'd come up with an idea and, and it would get, I would go so far down that route into that, that I just didn't want to do. But then one thing would take my attention that I was like really curious about. And I'd find myself three hours later with an entire visualization business plan detail on every aspect of how I would do it and the whole thing. And so I was like, right, this is really not helping me. I'm getting held back here by this whole struggling to focus thing. So I started looking into ADHD and doing those sort of tests and questionnaires. And then I did a few paid for little ones that were a little bit more expansive. Every single one, it wasn't like, oh, a few of the traits was like 10 out of 10, 10 out of 10, you know, out of a hundred, 99, hundred. And I was just like, Holy shit. I guess I've got this ADHD thing and I've never really considered what it was before. And then, as you say, you start doing, you know, more research and it, the light bulb was just, it felt like this huge sort of weight off my shoulders of like, oh, is this why I'm just struggled with so many things for so long? And I really like, I'm always feel like there's a current pulling me in certain directions and I just struggle to swim against it when I'm trying to do something that I'm, you know, that I don't enjoy doing. And there's so many little things that come out since learning about ADHD and that just tick all the boxes and, and help lighten, make me feel lighter because I've, because I feel like, okay. And one of the things I mentioned about labels, it's like, so I've got, I've started to go down the route of, of diagnosis for ADHD, but it's just like taking forever. It's just a bit like, do I, do I need it? But I kind of feel like, I feel like for me, I, I seek a lot of justification in what I do. Um, I don't know why, but I feel like if I had like almost like a, a medical reason or a, like a factual reason that's been diagnosed by someone who knows more than me, then that would give me a little bit more of an open door to do actually do the stuff that I love rather than just do the stuff I feel like I have to do R because it's like, well, actually I've got a really good reason why I'm doing this as well as just wanting to do it because there's a part of me that feels that's always felt without a diagnosis, without something telling me, no, you've definitely 100% got ADHD and just go with it. I feel like there's a, a resistance to doing all the stuff that I love because of almost like a bit of a selfishness. If like the stress comes with that, or I don't earn the money that I need to come with that, I will be, you know, putting more stress on my family, all that kind of thing. So, you know, like what I do now with the video is a bit like that. You know, I know I'm good at it because I spot patterns and a lot of the, lot of the benefits of having ADHD really relate into being able to create visual stuff and that's why I'm good at it and that's why I'm good at sort of teaching it but then you know everyone I think pretty much everyone knows here I think it's adventure and like that's what I've always wanted to do and I'm just always like thinking of that stuff so I've got a constant battle going on between the stuff that I want to do and I haven't actually found when you asked me to come on Carlos I was like oh, I'm not sure I'm going to be very helpful because I haven't found many ways to actually deal with it I stopped whipping myself with it with an elastic band, you'll be grateful to know. Um, but I think that I still struggle with that and I still struggle to, to find the balance between that stuff. And just, I'm just always so gung ho at doing the things I want to do and just so <laughs> resistant to the other things that I don't. Well, that, that's, I think what you just said is perfect though. It's, I think giving people a window into, into another world and how you've, so, well, for me, it's just hearing how 
just telling each other stories seem to be just pinging light bulbs for each other. And that being, I think, as much as anything is the intention we have here, really. I think that the, the, the thing for me is that I tr- deep down, I know and I've always known that the ADHD or the ability to hyper-focus is something that if I think about all the best things that I'm most proud of, all the things that I've most, mo- most success in my own vision of that has been where I've been hyper-focused on something, you know, building something, fixing something, creating something. I've been like unshakably, like no one can, unfuckwithable. No one can fuck it. Like I'm in this zone, get out of my way, you know, and that feels great to be in that zone, but I've just not been in it recently that much, as much as I'd like to. So hyper-focus, I mean, like totally, totally like my mind is so immersed in it and I'm, I'm only present in that thing so for example when i'm creating something physical building converting a van get a bit of window to convert in a van i know i can just get hyper focused i will work on it every waking hour of the day for those few days possible i'll go and be sitting eating dinner like talking to myself about you know the the wiring or whatever i'll be so into it that my, my wife will just be like oh my god i'll just be present for a minute it's like i am but somewhere else <laughs> you know and, and then but then the, the the other side of that is the thing where I have to like ah like barricade myself in and put a hoodie over my head to my screen to try and create that focus that just feels so difficult to do, and mm. that hyper focus of something it's always and for me it's also the pattern thing and and that related to that what Dan said one of the benefits is because I see it as a superpower if I'm allowed to like wear the cape do you know what I mean mm. and. It's fine trying to find those opportunities to wear the cape where it will be accepted and a, and a real positive for everybody is quite difficult in the current system of the way things work. So, like, for example, seeing patterns, that resonates with me. I see things and I put them together from so many different places that end up coming together and creating some sort of um, solution for something. It's like the video making. This is why I ended up, because I just spotted, okay, well, these are the same things that make all videos look good. Just do those. You don't need to learn how to do all the rest of it. Just do the few things that make these things look good. Right. And that seemed really obvious to me, but really not obvious to other people. And when I Mm. like one of the first slides in a lot of my workshops, I'll go, one of the first things around like mindset, creative mindset is show people what they don't ordinarily see. Because when we watch something in visual or, or video, the reason why we're attracted to it or people are attracted to it is because they see something they haven't seen before, or they see something they can't see with their own eyes. Like for example, why we love slow-mo because we don't see in slow-mo. We love a time-lapse because we don't see in a time-lapse, right? We just, and it's so showing what what I feel like is people with ADHD will have this different uh, or have these different perspectives, these divergent ways of thinking is if we can show people what they don't ordinarily see, we can show what we see. Mm. then people go, wow, that's cool. That's really interesting. And they, then they go for it. Right. So it's finding, I'm trying to find more opportunities to show people what they're not seeing. And I feel like that is a superpower that, that I think we all need to, if we, if you're neurodiverse is to try and, okay, what have I got differently and show people that as much as possible? Cause that's interesting. So don't normally see it. Mm. Thank you very much, Kim. I really like that, that from Kim as a, as an approach. And I think well, one of the big challenges of being neurodivergent and having learned to camouflage for so long is that the weaknesses or perceived weaknesses that you learn to cover up 
and perhaps have learned to cover up for so long that you've forgotten they're even the same, are very often your greatest strengths deployed differently. And figuring out what those are and figuring out how to turn them into things that are helpful for you, helpful for other people, is really a lot of the work. We, if you're, if you experience the world that differently, you're not given that on a plate the way that other people are. The pathway is actually not there for you laid out. The work is to make it if you find yourself in that situation. And I think that accepting and allowing ourselves to do that, partly because it's so deeply transgressive, it's so deeply heretical, this work, really. It's fundamentally challenging to the way things are in a good way, in a positive way, but but the world does not always respond to that positively, is, is a difficult thing to kind of overcome internally. And the other part of it is really recovering what you enjoy. You know, what is, is what really lights you up? I'd spent, I'd forgotten. I, I'm not sure I ever knew because I never had it or very rarely had it. And I had, I definitely still some, somewhat carry that idea of anything. It's like, the idea, like for me, guilty pleasure is kind of a tautology. It's uh, it, it's the same thing. There, 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 there's no such thing as a pleasure that isn't guilty because it's because I was told that everything I enjoyed was kind of wrong, or certainly the way I was doing it was wrong. And and actually recovering that and working on that is a huge part of it. And sharing our experiences, I love that. You know, it really is shared experiences. So often we experience, you know, when you when you experience the world differently, you experience these very small, constant invalidation. These things that are like. You know, actually, am I, am I experience? you know, you, you kind of question your own experience of the world so much so that you, you can kind of lose sight of it. And the recovery of that, the working with other people who experience the world in a similar way, sharing those experiences and sharing the value of that experience, discovering the value of that experience with other people who are similar is a huge part of it, really. Yeah. And so for me, I think that is like is is that that self exploration that real like becoming curious allowing yourself to be curious is is for me is is the fundamental thing you know giving your giving yourself that gift um, because if not for you because that is the greatest gift you can offer other people as well if it felt like being in Matthew's head and Kim and Dan's head in a, in a good way to understand what it's like to be neurodivergent. So for me, I'm just absorbing, really learning. And I think what it's given me is, like Matthew said, this feeling that these are strengths, not weaknesses. And how do we, like this, I suppose, create space for conversations first and foremost, to be aware of these points of difference. So people don't feel different, but feel they could be themselves. But also like Kim has said, in particular, this kind of creative force that feels like it's at the heart of it. You know, how do we encourage that more? Because I guess that's what entrepreneurship is, isn't it? Like thinking differently, having different ideas and, and not following the norm is actually a quality, not something that should be sort of bashed down. So yeah, for me, it's just been fascinating to listen in because I feel like, yeah, it's a, a positive can of worms in some ways to understand what this is all about and how we can play our part, I suppose, in, in making people feel like people feel like it can be themselves ultimately. That's what it comes down to for me. Totally. I, I'm just been really appreciative of this, you know, the stories and just to see, like you said, into other people's worlds and some of the stuff that I, I related to, some of the stuff that that both Kim and and Dan were sharing and and Matt. Um, uh, it's quite interesting. This idea of I would like to say, like, 
to be different, but not to feel apart. Because I think, you know, we, we are all different, but it doesn't mean we have to be apart from each other. It doesn't mean we can't be connected. And that for me is an interesting thing to look think about. And again, from Kim and, and, and Dan, like to be unfuckable on the edge of the bell curve. Like, oh, don't, don't don't fuck with me. I'm going to be the, I'm going to be happy in this place. I don't have to conform, but um, I can still provide value. So so much to learn here, and I'm really appreciate this. And thank you, Matt, for for opening up this world to me and to Lawrence here, and and to sharing that story with everyone else. For people who would like to learn more about your work and to get help from you. Matthew, where's the best place to send them and how best to get in touch with them? As a person with ADHD, I'm in the midst of like doing multiple things at once and redoing the description of the website and everything. The best way is probably LinkedIn at the moment. If you're interested in community, although the community name has changed, you can find out about the community at divergentpathfinders.com. That is specifically for neurodivergent. Really, um, yeah, people who want to take this different path in work who are neurodivergent. I've, uh, you can also find out a little bit about me at matthewbarringer.com, but it's all out of date. So yeah, use LinkedIn. I, I love uh, talking to people. So do just reach out and have a conversation. That's the, the best way to do it. And join us if you're interested, if you identify neurodivergent. And I should say, for me, it doesn't, you don't need a diagnosis. It's all about whether you really identify with that experience. And so that for me is the fundamental thing and exploring what that is and how we can best benefit from that is yeah it's great stuff so there are lots of other good resources out there some of which i can recommend uh, maybe we can recommend as well to help people explore that so also if you search for uh, matthew bellringer on uh, youtube you'll find my podcast uh, delightful descent or pod, pod webcast delightful descent which is really about fundamentally challenging these kind of deep-seated ideas that aren't examined aren't considered where they don't work for us and how we can have some fun doing it whilst we do one of the things I really like to focus on is having fewer shoulds, mm. is we're all told that there are so many things we should be doing to be successful, to be, you know, to be happy, to be lovable, to be whatever. And you, I've yet to meet a person who didn't have more than enough things to be doing. I've yet to meet a person with ADHD who didn't have a backlog of like who, who keeping track of the things that they were supposed to be doing was one of the things that they weren't even doing. Um, so, so like dropping some of those things off the list and maybe replacing them with more wholesome, more fulfilling, easier ways of doing them is a huge part of this and finding what that is for you. And part of the show is really about exploring some of those and getting rid of some of the things we should be doing so we can replace them with things that we want to do instead. Thank you for listening to our Happy Entrepreneur podcast. If you like what you heard, please subscribe to us on iTunes, Spotify, uh, and SoundCloud, or wherever you found this podcast episode. And if you'd like to learn more about creating a new path for your work and business, a path that feels more meaningful, more purposeful, and more aligned to who you really are, then sign up to our newsletter on our website, The Happy Startup School. Com, and you'll receive little nuggets of wisdom, stories of experienced entrepreneurs following this more purposeful path, and also a little bit of a wittering from myself and Lawrence and other useful bits of information and content to keep you inspired, keep you engaged, and keep you happy. Mm-hmm.